0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
1: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis... Join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren.
0: Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Everyone engaged in the crypto ecosystem has had at least one conversation that leads to the famous question, Isn't that stuff just for criminals? In fact, I myself told friends back in the day that as a lawyer and card carrying member of the California and New York bars, I couldn't be invested in, quote, that criminal money. Times have changed, but recently the industry has not done itself favors when it comes to its reputation. As the last year has shown, there is in fact fraud and manipulation and illicit activity that's taken place via crypto. Though to be clear, the biggest news stories are adjacent to, not about, crypto itself. As we know from our time on Money Reimagined, things are never so simple. The conversation around crypto and national security is a lot more nuanced than, quote, crypto is for criminals, and governments are generally aware of that reality. Here are a few facts. In 2022, only 0.15% of crypto transactions were illicit. This is compared to estimates of 2.5% traditional finance, which faces its own set of measurement challenges. We've also seen recently some of the largest seizures of illicit funds enabled by the traceability of blockchain. For example, the seizure of over 50,000 Bitcoin in November 2021 was the largest in the U.S. Justice Department's history, and the perpetrator recently pled guilty. So even if criminals might be using crypto, they're getting caught. At the same time, it's important to keep in mind that dirty money in the financial system can have devastating effects. So there's a very complicated web of actors focused entirely on the task of maintaining financial integrity and national security. With that, it's time for this week's dose of alphabet soup. To start, standards around money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism are commonly referred to as AML, Anti-Money Laundering, slash CFT, countering the financing of terrorism. These standards are set by a body called the Financial Action Task Force, also known as the FATF. From there, there's a large web of actors involved in supervision, investigation, and enforcement of these standards that sit within national governments. This includes financial intelligence units, central banks, and financial conduct supervisors. These entities generally partner with the private sector and service providers to monitor suspicious activity in the financial system. Now these standards are deeply woven into the fabric of financial services. So changing or adapting them takes an immense amount of global coordination, education, and negotiation. And as we know, blockchain brings about both new opportunities and new challenges. So how do we square the circle? To discuss this week, we're joined by two of the foremost experts on this topic. Dr. Marcus Plyer was the former president of the FATF, which is noted as the body that oversees global standards for AML and CFT. He now serves as Deputy Director General in Germany's Federal Ministry of Finance with responsibilities for policy development and international engagement. Prior to his current role, Dr. Plyer headed the Division for International Financial Markets, served as Head of Cabinet for Germany's Federal Finance Minister, and was a Senior Advisor in the Federal Chancellery. Yaya Fanoussi is Director of Policy for AML and Cyber Risk at the Crypto Council for Innovation and an Adjunct Senior Fellow at the Center for New American Security. He began his career as an economic and counterterrorism analyst in the CIA, then worked as director of analysis at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance, and led research on sanctions, evasion, and terrorist financing threats. He's testified before Congress multiple times on illicit financing issues. Since my co-host Michael Casey is away this week, we're going to jump right to our guests. I am really excited to chat about this critical issue, which to me exemplifies the global nature of our financial system. So, Marcus, I'd love to start with you and just get your take as the former head of FATF. How is new technology changing the way that FATF and other bodies, national governments, are thinking about these issues around AML and CFT?
1: So thank you, uh, Sheila, and it's great to be with you in this show. So new technology um, has a twofold impact on the FATF. One is, um, as you just framed it in, in, for the industry, it's the opportunity side. So we look into how the new technologies can help us to make AML more effective. This is artificial intelligence. These are uh, tools to find the criminals on on blockchain. There are many different tools. And of course, we look at the risk side and see how criminals can use new technologies. And uh, we have a so-called risk and trends monitoring group which consists of national prosecutors, policemen, investigators, who bring together the experience from 206 jurisdictions. So we very early see when new technologies are misused by criminals at any place of the world. And if they detect a new trend that deserves a standard change of FATF, we bring it to the so-called policy development group, which we did in 2017-18 when we started to regulate the crypto area. There, the new standards are developed and they are discussed among the various governments that are part of FATF. And then we go into a discussion and consultation with the private sector. So there was an intensive consultation with the crypto sector. Finally, when we have understood the impact of our future uh, regulation, we then come together and uh, agree on a new set of standards, which we saw in 2019, when as the first standard set of worldwide, we set standards for, for crypto.
0: Fascinating. And I think it's it's so important. And one thing I love about the approach of takes is, of course, you know, folks in the crypto and blockchain ecosystem tend to forget that this is but one of many technological innovations that is having an impact. And of course, artificial intelligence and even like engagement in the metaverse, however we define that term, is is also shifting and changing at the same time that we're getting some of the benefits that blockchain can provide. We're also seeing the enhanced engagement with these other technologies as well, and they are highly relevant to how you think about stopping the flow of, of funds for illicit activity, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I'll turn to you for for a moment, because I think you've kind of watched this a, a bit from the industry side, also from government, but I'm curious if you can kind of tell us what you've observed. And maybe this is, you know, just tell yeah. us kind of your, your story and how you got engaged in this topic and what you've seen emerging from the industry across the past couple of years.
2: Sure. Thank you, Sheila. Great to be with you and uh, you as well, uh, Dr. Plyer. I guess I would put the heading of all of my experiences following my professional curiosity, you know, that's how I got here. And for the record, you know, I always like to point out that I'm a former CIA analyst. You know, I left the CIA, that was over 10 years ago. But a lot of times people think that I was you know, doing crypto at the agency, as we call it. And, and that's not the case. I was yeah, I was an economic analyst, uh, but then I mostly did counterterrorism work. And this was in the early days. So I knew nothing about crypto or, or Bitcoin when I was there. And in terms of how I stumbled upon this, later when I left government, I was working in the think tank world here in Washington, D.C. at a national security think tank, again, focusing on economic issues. And I was looking at the traditional illicit finance, national security issues, you know, regular terrorist financing, sanctions evasion, you know, all those kleptocracy, all those sort of big issues. And as a researcher who was just sort of thinking about what's next, what do policymakers need to know about, roughly around 2015, I started asking about... Bitcoin, or I learned about Bitcoin in 2016, again, sort of just wondering, well, what's up with this Bitcoin? And I um, stumbled upon a a really a a small terrorist crowdfunding campaign that happened to be on social media using Bitcoin. And that for me was my first exposure to not only crypto, but a bad actor using this new technology. Uh, But a light bulb went off because as I, you know, I was in my office sitting there and working with my interns, and we went on blockchain.info and looking at this crypto wallet that was raising funds. And a light bulb went off because I said, wait a second, this is a terrorist group. They're soliciting this Bitcoin stuff and I can see the transactions. This is great. This is like a wonderful opportunity as a researcher, as an analyst. Uh, so from there, you know, I started looking at these issues around crypto, started getting more exposed to the industry and really developing a respect you know, in many ways for this technology, for what was possible. You know, in my little spiel, was saying uh, things have really progressed. I mean, in 2016, 2017, the state of the industry when I was going to conferences, uh, crypto conferences, talking about these issues or asking about these issues, compliance, anti-money laundering compliance was a niche issue. It was not a front, you know, front and center issue in a lot of circles. And so that totally has changed. And I think a lot of that is due to what happened in the 2018 and 2019 period with FATF with its virtual asset guidance. So really, it's almost like maybe not night and day, but you know, morning and and afternoon in terms of where we are. Maybe a breakfast and tea time. There's so much to unpack
0: here. I think what we see globally is a set of kind of global principles, like largely promulgated by the Fattah, that are kind of locally realized, right? And to the extent that there might be differentiation in that realization. So that's challenging because pushing activities offshore, using that term respective to any jurisdiction, can raise a lot of challenges around any country's ability to investigate and take enforcement actions. So maybe we can just walk through some of the mechanics around this, things like you know SARS or, or other kinds of mechanisms that are used in order to kind of create a more global network for flagging activity that might be relevant. It might be spotted by one jurisdiction, for example, but be kind of located, you know, offshore of that jurisdiction. So if we can start with some of the mechanics around how this global cooperation works. Marcus, I'll turn to you to kind of talk about how those global principles are established and what it might take to shift them, but also the extent to which the the national level governments have responsibility for kind of thinking about how to enforce them. Maybe we'll start there.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, Well, As the FATF is a policy development group and also a group that monitors countries with implementation, first task of the FATF is now to uh, monitor the the implementation of the new standards, which they do by their main product, which is the so-called mutual evaluations of of countries. And um, there is some kind of um, pre-product, I would call it, and that is something we especially developed for the crypto um, area, and that is that we conducted so-called 12-month reviews. So after we um, adopted these standards, every 12 months, we conducted a review across all jurisdictions to see how far they are with implementing our standards. That was a kind of informal review, but now we are bringing this in into our formal product, the mutual evaluations, which can have serious consequences for countries if they show that they have not complied with the the new standards. It can, in the end, even lead to a so-called listing of countries, which which means we put them on a gray list or even on a black list if we see that they have not uh, implemented the new standard effectively. Uh, and I say effectively because we not only expect from countries that they implement these new uh, standards into their legal system, but that they also apply this effectively on the ground. And we currently indeed see something that is worrying, and that is that in countries where the FRTF standards were implemented effectively, some of the industry is moving away to countries that have a lighter touch regulation approach and which have maybe their mutual evaluation not now but maybe in five years time so how do we cope with this and that is indeed a matter more for national um, agencies investigators and they work mostly through international cooperation uh, by the so-called Egmont group which is the group that connects the different FIUs the financial intelligence units which are the receivers of the suspicious transactions reports, right? So if uh, in in one country you see a suspicious transaction and that is issued, filed, or shared with the Financial Intelligence Unit, and you see it has a global or at least a bilateral or trilateral dimension, and it's moving from one country to the other, or it's moving within the the blockchain, then the FIU can contact other FIUs and uh, compare the data uh, share the data and provide it to the investigators to finally find the criminals uh, physically and bring them uh, uh, to justice.
0: Okay, so let's break that down, right? Because it's it's a it's it's a very it's a sophisticated network that operates globally. And so what happens is you get these standards that are put out by an international body. There is then localization of those standards. Fadif goes in and does a review that Marcus just explained to us all about whether or not there's compliance with the standards to the degree that FATF wants to see. Now, it's important, I think, to know that there is some differentiation. It's not that you have to, it's not a black and white evaluation, right? There is some differentiation based on a country's, you know, other laws or other things or what policy they have in place or, or whatnot. For some countries, you know, maybe they were buttoned up in a way that is very compliant already with a new standard, whereas for another country, they might have a long way to go and it, 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 there is variability. Now, I think what you're suggesting is that there are some countries that deliberately take a lighter touch, and we can dive into the reasons why that might be to some, you know, it might be for some, it might actually be to attract a certain kind of economic activity, you know, to their, uh, within their borders. For others, it may be challenges with implementing the standards, and we can talk about that, particularly for uh, what we call uh, VASP, virtual asset service providers, and thinking about the way that they operate within a jurisdiction, what laws already apply to them, et cetera. So there is a chance there for differentiation. But then there's also a lot of cooperation and that cooperation generally, but not always happens through an FIU, but it also often involves law enforcement, right? Uh, Local and and national, international law enforcement. It can involve uh, a justice system, right? Um, There's all kinds of other bodies and groups and coordination that happens, um, some of which has now been digitized, which is interesting because back in the day, there. It was a very phone call oriented kind of system. And now some of these things are shared digitally. So maybe, Yaya, you can talk about the practical mechanics around some of this and be even thinking about SARS and like what that means, right? If the flag is thrown, um, what does that actually mean in terms of the responsibility for a crypto service, a VASP, essentially uh, on a VASP? And what is their obligation to respond? And how have you seen that kind of either shift over time or how have you seen that manifest within the industry?
2: One thing to point out is, you know, a lot of these problems are, you know, not just localized to the crypto industry, right? The, The problems between, you know, in terms of information reporting, collaboration, communication between FIUs, right? These are longstanding issues. And so now you put the crypto, you know, a more nascent industry which maybe the distinction here is that crypto is born out of the tech sector, right? It's not born out of the financial sector. All the services, all the protocols, procedures, reporting, uh, you know, all, all the compliance uh, requirements, that's been in the realm of, of the financial services industry for decades, right? It's, in fact, many people say, right, financial services is the most regulated, maybe that in healthcare, right, the most regulated industry. So you get this new thing a decade or so ago called crypto, which is made up of mostly, mostly tech folks, right? Let me share one thing that happened before the FATF guidance. Maybe this will illustrate why it's important to have FATF guidance on virtual assets or, or on crypto assets, we would say. So a few years ago, I conducted a research project uh, with, with a uh, blockchain analysis firm. We, were, we, we co-authored this research where we looked at, illicit finance transactions across jurisdictions. And we, this was in the early days, quote unquote, this is 2013 to 2016. And what we were trying to figure out was, you know, what types of exchanges, what types of services had more illicit, more higher percentage or absolute numbers of illicit transactions you know, by jurisdiction. And the interesting thing was, although the US had you know, a lot, absolute numbers, a lot of illicit finance going through services, the percentage value was much smaller compared to other jurisdictions. And Europe was actually a, a place where we saw a much bigger percentage, again, percentage numbers. Now, what was the difference? Now, they, we were doing this research in 2017. The difference was in the US, You know, the US Financial Intelligence Unit, which is called FinCEN, uh, Financial Crime Enforcement Network, right? FinCEN for short, uh, out of treasury, underneath US treasury. They had put out a guidance in 2013, which said all these things that you're talking about, Sheila, if you're going to be a crypto business and a crypto exchange, you need to file suspicious activity reports or suspicious transaction reports you need to have a aml know your customer program you need to monitor transact you need to do all these things this was back in 2013 so the crypto industry in the us even though it's global there was a lower percentage whereas in, in i'm not picking on europe but these are just the facts but in europe at the time in 2016 2013 2016 you you didn't have that guideline i think you, the europeans were were looking for it and it wasn't there so for me the the key takeaway was okay Wow! If you simply have clear regulations about what to do if your crypto business, what requirements you, you need to fulfill, etc., that really reduces the illicit traffic that can go through your your services. And thankfully, I think you know a few years later with this fat of guidance, I think now we're seeing
1: jurisdictions adjust. Sheila, if you allow and I may come in, this very much reminds me of, of a story. You know, I started actually um, as a supervisor in the securities area. And my elder colleagues always told me that in the 70s, 80s, the securities market in Europe was wide west, not regulated. But in the United States, much more regulated, right? And uh, decades later, we followed up in Europe and now have a very much regulated market. And um, all the criminal activities that we saw in the 70s, 80s have vanished. So <laughs> this very much, I think, is comparable to what we see in in crypto. United States was a forerunner in regulation on crypto in Europe and in other parts of the world. I think we saw less regulation. And for that reason, we saw much more financial crime. And this is now changing uh, very much in parallel what we saw decades ago with the securities market.
0: It's really interesting. And of course, we're talking, when we talk about regulation, we're talking about the specific area of AML and CFT. And kind of the pulling over of pre-existing standards in the U.S. into this new space as kind of a default mechanism, which didn't necessarily, to the point, happen everywhere. Now, I'm curious to switch gears a little bit because, of course, and Yaya, you, you mentioned this. Maybe we'll start with you on this one. You know, There are attributes of the blockchain that actually make some of the investigations and other things um, significantly easier, right? And, and there's analytics and other kinds of things that have now have sprung up around this, that the fact that anybody who has a pretty rudimentary, frankly, amount of knowledge can actually look at a block explorer and observe a transaction. We saw this happening, you know, on Twitter around some of the FTX money that was moving and people kind of watching that in real time, you know, with that popcorn in hand, depending on who you were, I suppose. How can we take advantage of the realities around the technology? What are the limitations that sort of assuming we need to have the same system put into play?
2: That is a you know very complicated issue, obviously. What does this technology allow? And the, the biggest difference now is that you have a public ledger where the data is available. So And and, and you're right when you said even just a rudimentary tools, looking at a wallet on a regular blockchain uh, browser, which is what I did when I started, even without a tool, just working with my interns and, and looking at the wallets, following the wallets, you can learn a lot, right? So the technology allows probably for more sophisticated analysis because there's just more data. There's more data that's available. That, so if you're an investigator, you can do more. You have just more um, fidelity in terms of what's actually happening. So how do we deal with the challenge, the sort of the de-risking? I think de-risking is the term that many people may, may or not know about, right? Which is the fact that because of the AML-CFT regime, institutions... Don't want risk. They don't want to invite risk because of regulators. So they actually are going to use data, the data about a potential customer, the data about a jurisdiction, data about previous behavior to potentially exclude. You know, that's an ongoing issue, crypto or not. I don't have an easy answer for it. But the thing I would say is that the opportunity actually may lie in the industry itself. I actually think it's going to come more from the technology in terms of how to solve this problem because you're right, Sheila. The current framework, you know, across jurisdictions is it's an old framework. It's an old framework that we are trying to update a little bit with technology. But when you think about it, how do frameworks get developed? They sort of get developed because of what is happening in the industry. What is happening in the public? What are people using? What are institutions using? So it's going to be difficult to, to have the regulators sort of create a new framework for something that is emerging. It sort of has to emerge so that's the fine line so how do we construct the framework for something that hasn't fully emerged but we see that it's different i don't have the you know I, there's no silver
1: bullet there but it's something we have to explore
0: yeah marcus i'd love to hear your thoughts yeah
1: please. yeah I, I just want to make one comment I, I completely agree with jaya that the transactions are transparent and we can see the movements which is exciting and and, and helps us understanding how financial crime on on, on blockchain works but what we don't see in an unregulated uh, jurisdiction is actually who is the originator and who is the beneficiary we only see numbers right so i think that 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 is where we come in with uh, with the regulation which requires identification at the gateway to to blockchain so when, when I think of this uh, Libra idea of creating an own ecosystem, this becomes even more complicated. Currently, we just wait until the criminal uh, comes through the gateway and exchanges crypto back to uh, fiat money, right? And then we can, we can catch them if they have not mixed it with Monero and whatever, and we, can, we, we lose them. We lose the trace. But in an ecosystem like Libra had in mind, uh, which I think has a lot of interesting opportunities, but from an AML perspective, you never have to leave the ecosystem. You can stay within it. And once you have not uncovered your identity, you can walk with your uh, fake identity spend your money. That is really a challenge for AML.
0: So, so here, I think, is the heart of the matter, right? Right now, when you exit a, a blockchain-backed or other crypto ecosystem into fiat, or when you move from fiat, you know, these, we call these on and off ramps. So in there or out of a blockchain-backed ecosystem, crypto ecosystem, you are required because you're engaging, generally speaking, with the traditional financial institution of some kind to comply with whatever, you know, uh, know your customer kinds of rules or whatever it is they're doing. So. The same way you get a bank account, right? If you want to sell your Bitcoin and move it into you know u s dollars, then that bank if a bank is containing that or any, anytime you're engaging with with a traditional financial institution, you're subject to all the all the sort of know your customer other kinds of rules there. But when you remain within the ecosystem, it is a different set to some extent of rule. And I think this really what it comes down to, and this is kind of like the, the heart of, I think, a lot of what is attractive about Crypto, but also what is challenging is a question of privacy, and I don't think we can have a chat about privacy without thinking about some of the norms and standards around privacy around the world. And so I want to pivot us a little bit into thinking about one of the other things that's really exciting about digital currencies, speaking more broadly, is their programmability. And so we talk a lot about you know how you can whether it's a smart contract or another mechanism, you can automate certain things, you can um, create certain kinds of what we call oracles or signaling. There's a lot of things that you can do uh, that become uh, very interesting. Now on the bad side of this, I think the the kind of like stalking horse that always pulled out there is, oh my gosh, you could have a government issue a digital currency and then use things like social scoring or reputation, or ethnicity or whatever it is, to permit certain kinds of activity and uh, forbid other kinds of activity You know, using that system, right? On the other side, a stalking horse for others is, oh, anyone could do whatever they want at any time and there'd be zero ability, You know, so any anybody for any purpose or any terrorist or whoever could use everything. And those are kind of, I think, extreme examples. But I, I wanna frame this in the context of something that's happening that I'm, I'm observing Uh, in Europe right now, which is this discussion around a digital euro. Now, in May, Marcus, we were there, you know, we we were in Davos when Christine Lagarde made her statement saying, you know, four years from now, she sees the ECB rolling out digital euro, et cetera. And this year, we're seeing quite a bit of political anxiety about that activity because of this reason, in part, of programmability and also around the question of privacy. Now, in context, we have China, who, well in advance of May, rolled out Digital yuan within their borders, to be fair, although that is no longer entirely the case, but for a period of time that was just within China's borders. But already we've we've heard evidence, at least I certainly have, um of this being used to differentiate, you know parts of the population here and there, depending on not through social scoring something like that but just easier availability of certain kinds of services to certain parts of the population based on geography primarily at the moment. But nevertheless, that has been something that has been flagged by human rights and other activists within the country. So I'm curious to just get reflections on A, the global nature of privacy, how we think about programmability of money, and specifically, I'd love to get comments on the digital euro in the context of the political realities that are happening now in Europe post-Brexit, And the concerns, I think, that we're seeing expressed by a lot of European governments around A, being a foil to whatever China is offering, and B, thinking about how to engender privacy for citizens as really a fundamental digital human right.
2: The thing I'll say about China, I have been looking at China for a while. And one way to think about it is maybe it doesn't matter who does a CBDC first or not, but the key thing is that there is a model that is developing that the People's Republic of China is, is putting out there. And it is the model of a CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, that is government controlled, that will be programmable, that all data will go to the government. To be fair, the government has put out assurances that there will be privacy or that people's information will not be looked at unless there's a suspicious you know, criminal activity, et cetera, right, but that's sort of a paper thin <laughs> assurance because of where it's coming from. And so I think what this raises is, you know, when you really get into CBDCs, it's really easy from afar to say, oh, wow, great, great for monetary policy, great for analysis, great for aggregating data, right? A lot of central bankers are actually thinking that way. But once you really get into the details about technically what's possible, design choices, you really realize that there are ethical questions, there are serious privacy policy questions that have to be sorted out that aren't simple. And especially because a lot of these policy questions, there are problems that we can't foresee because we've never had, you know, government-controlled programmable money where it has real-time access to all. We've never had that before, so we might not even be able to foresee some of these thorny complications.
1: Yeah, so from from my side, you expect now a lot from my side on on the digital euro, but I must tell you it's... It's not even a baby yet, right? It's in in the very, very, very early stage of of planning. So I can tell you a little bit about the expectations and the different camps. So I think there is one camp that things that digital money means that we abolish cash. And uh, there are some European societies uh, which are very cash oriented still. Um, And they think that we definitely take away privacy, uh, that the government wants to control all transactions and and all the other issues that you can do with government controlled, controlled money. There is another camp that respects this cash orientation and wants the digital money to be um, exactly cash alike with no traceability, uh, with complete privacy. But everyone who has an idea of how, how technology works will know that it will never be exactly like cash, because there will always be some trace in 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 the internet um, and, and where this money flows. So I think the current idea is to bring not not to design the digital euro in a way that it cannot be misused by criminals, but to see who can be the service providers of this digital money and to oblige them as we do this currently with banks uh, that issue other services and and products. To to a certain threshold, this money should be used with a a huge extent of privacy and uh, data protection. And it's then up to the people, the service providers who take this money, who issue the money to make sure it's not uh, used for, for money laundering purposes. So very, very alike. We see this today with electronic money, with payments and so on. So not so much a difference, um, I think.
0: You know, the kind of uh, one of the big jokes that I always find sort of entertaining is that, you know, if you if you imagine someone trying to pitch cash you know, and be like, we're going to have this ability to exchange value and it's completely untraceable. And, you know, like, people would be like, what are you, what? I mean, it would never get off the ground, you know? And yet that is the default. It really is. And, and I, I thought something was so interesting that I heard today, which is, you know, at the time a lot of our rules were created, people were transacting pretty much in cash. Like that was the mechanism because a lot of our rules do date back to a time, you know, pre-ATMs, pre-credit cards, pre-debit cards, pre-any of that infrastructure. And people were really going to a bank teller, pulling out a bunch of cash and paying for everything with cash, which was untraceable. And that is not that far back in our collective memory, our cultural memory. And in fact, you know, there are some societies that have moved to being predominantly cashless. And this is independent of uh, GDP, right? It's really just about kind of how tech forward in many cases. It's about connectivity. It's about a lot of other things that are less about, I think, GDP or even the focus of the economy, they're really just about convenience factors, other kinds of things that that have happened in some parts of the world that haven't happened everywhere. And I think an ongoing question in development agencies is, you know, are we, is cash going to be the the last bastion for individuals in poverty to actually engage in transactions? Is it going to be harder and harder to actually engage using cash and to make purchases and, and payments using cash? Is that going to become a challenge? Is the gatekeeping around the ability to enter the financial system going to be predicated on infrastructure, connectivity, all these kinds of things, right? And that's a, a really big question and challenge that I, I think about a lot, frankly. So it's it's just almost this this flip that we're seeing in society of, of the default modality, particularly in certain parts of the world. Now, all that being said, I do think you know that we we already have an awful lot of transaction visibility, let's call it, that was not originally contemplated by our financial system that's kind of emerged over the years. And I think that digitization of SARs and the ease of kind of filing a SAR, like all of that, like it's much easier to file one now. The responsibility to file one is easier. The ability for other agencies or other FIUs to kind of spot it and kind of flag it is easier. The ability for law enforcement to engage in this kind of thing is easier. The ability to get certain financial surveillance warrants is, generally speaking, not everywhere easier. So a lot of our norms around privacy in our financial system have changed a lot away from cash to begin with, which I think is fascinating. So I loved hearing your articulation, Marcus, of the different approaches and those who are like, "Look, cash worked for a very long time. It worked fine, you know, and a lot of things about it were were not problematic until we kind of created infrastructure that maybe made them a little problematic." And it's really in terms of exclusion. Of course, other people are like, look, cash is basically dead in some parts of the world. Maybe we lean into that model and think about accelerating it almost, right? Now, my personal view is that cash is never going to go away. Once you have it, I don't think you're ever going to not have it. So we have to accommodate a world in which a multiplicity of options do remain available. All that being said, the reality is more and more things are moving digitally online. And again, as noted... You know, Blockchain is hardly the only technology that is influencing the way that we think about financial transactions or other kinds of financial services, including the provisions of you know, credit or insurance or other lending, other kinds of things as well. We unfortunately are going to have to wrap in a few minutes, but where do we go from here? Right. So we, we kind of walked through a lot of the complexity in this space, some of the challenges jurisdiction by jurisdiction, some of the challenges in getting a consistent view on things like privacy of the use of cash, et cetera. We've talked to some, a little bit of some of the challenges that vast virtual service providers have around uh, engagement and compliance. Um, so so where do we go from here and what, what is the path forward? If we again presume that a fundamental policy goal and a legitimate policy goal is the minimization, certainly making it as hard as possible, recognizing that people are always going to find their creative ways to get around systems and they may default to the flying cash across a border that was the provenance of you know arms dealers and others for a very long time in our history and remains so to this day. If we assume that the prevention or minimization of that is a legitimate and laudable public policy goal, you know, what is the path forward given the reality and complexity of the system we're finding ourselves in now?
2: So, I mean, I'll I'll just say something. I mean, if I can go out on a limb and and try to be super big picture. So I'm going to go back. I think we're in a moment of societal discussion and societal shaping. Similar to the late 18th century, I, I I think the conversation. So, like, come from the U.S. perspective. I think the conversation that happened when the U.S. Constitution was being drafted, when the Fourth Amendment was being, you know, uh, and even going back to the Declaration of Independence, right? But the Constitution, in particular, like, there was an understanding of the need for privacy. There was an understanding of what government abuse looks like, what tyranny looks like. So when when our founders, right, when the U.S. founders sort of put into place like, okay, some ground rules, certain rights, and they created these barriers, they created a space for for your papers to not be disturbed, right, by the government, et cetera. And I kind of feel like societally, not just in the U.S., but everywhere, we're in a similar moment, which is, wow, things are developing so quickly. Now we actually have an opportunity. Looking at, we've been in this digital world for a while. Many of us have seen the analog, and we've seen the digital, and we see things getting more digital. So the question of what does digital financial privacy look like, I think that needs to be answered. I think we're at that moment of, of just saying as a society and as policymakers and as industry, what should that be? What should we experiment? What, sh- uh, what should we put in place? So I don't want to ramble off, but that's where I think we're, we are.
0: I totally agree. I'm just going to jump in here with host privileges, right? I absolutely agree. I and mean, I think that we are, one of the reasons you see a lot of political philosophy underlying people's engagement with these assets and with this space certainly in the earlier days was that people have and i think what's fascinating about this is you can have vastly different political philosophies about the legitimacy or value of government all the way from best thing ever to we don't need it you know and you can find value and use in in this opportunity that that the system presents uh, and I think we are having some very complicated and important conversations at the political level, leaving aside anything to do with crypto. We're seeing this all over the world with the rise of populism, you know, different kinds of uh, political, philosophy. again, getting traction in ways that they they have not for a very long time. So I, I think that that very much is reflective and symbiotic with what's happening broader in our society uh, and culturally. So I, I absolutely agree. And I do think that this particular, you know, narrow frame on that broader conversation is gonna dictate a lot of how much traction certain kinds of views get, if if I put it frankly, right? This is almost like a canary in a coal mine for that broader conversation in some ways, because it already is a very highly regulated industry, financial services, right, as a general matter, to your point, Yaya, earlier, you know, health insurance and financial services, right? That's kind of the big three. So how we think about that, recognizing that regulation is not just inevitable, but, you know, gonna be necessary in a space, How we think about that is going to frame a lot of other conversations that, you know, are about much more fundamental, I think, civil liberties and human rights. Um, But Marcus would love to hear your thoughts on this because, you know, I want to chime with violent agreement, but certainly there's room for other perspectives as well. Yeah,
1: exactly. But there there is not really much to to add. I completely agree with you, with your sociological analysis and, and reflections. Maybe just from a narrower AML perspective, as you indicated, Sheila, it's always a race between regulators and criminals. And my experience now from a 30-year experience as a civil servant is that the regulation is breathing in a way. It's becoming narrower when there is scandals and it's becoming more flexible when, when when there is a calm period. And that is also true, I think, for AML. Currently, I think the the, the next steps from a FATF perspective is to really come to this um, global regulation. We we, we have not reached this point. Uh, Currently, it's, uh, I think, something around 50 something jurisdictions that have implemented our rules, but it's still uh, more than 100 out there that have not. So we need to really stop this loophole, stop this regulatory arbitrage uh, that we see. And then we have to face new challenges, which we haven't talked really about DeFi. And, and DeFi is a big, big challenge for, for AML because we don't have this traditional obliged entities that we uh, can make responsible for, for the AML obligations. So yeah, that, that from a very narrow perspective as an AML fighter, these are the next steps.
0: There's a lot to do. I mean, it is not an easy topic. I really appreciate the two of you helping me dive into it. You know, the one thing that I will say, just in conclusion, because we do have to wrap, unfortunately, is, you know, there are far more, like, vast majority, really good actors in this industry than not. And and nobody is interested in something that they are pouring hours and hours of their time building. You know, Uh, no one is interested in that being used by horrible people to do or fund horrible things. That I can say with certainty, having now been in this space full time, you know, for for almost six years uh, and knowing most of the big players. I think that that is that is very much true. And so I'm heartened by the level of collaboration and discussion, you know, that I have observed personally and that I know is ongoing, even outside of conversations that I or, or the CCI team might be part of around really understanding, you know, how do we take advantage of the opportunities presented here? How do we recognize the new reality of technologies? Not just, again, blockchain technologies, but other things as well. And how do we take it into new models of encryption, you know, AI, all this kind of stuff to make sure that what we are building is a secure system that can work for everybody in the world, ideally, but certainly as many people as possible. It's not going to digitize forms of exclusion and bias that we've seen, which happen for a variety of reasons, some intentional or malicious on the part of even governments or private sector actors, but some just the result of zealous <laughs> desire to comply, right? And, and almost paranoia about perceptions about a lack of extreme compliance with certain rules that may not be as easy or even as as optimized for this new environment that we're in. These are ongoing questions. They're hard questions. And it certainly uh, gives me a lot of comfort that folks like the two of you are at the forefront of these conversations and helping to move this all forward in a responsible uh, way. So with that, thank you so much, Marcus Plyer, Yaya Fanusi, for joining me today. Uh, next week, we're back with another episode of Money Reimagined and look forward to having Michael Casey back uh, for another episode of Money Reimagined. See you all then. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, announcements by Adam B. Levine, and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments we would love to hear from you, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.